We need to capture the greatness of our Lord, don't we? I think about what our world needs. I mean, they need to see Jesus. Those words that we sang, and it's interesting. I'm always waiting for the crowd when it says I'm going to shout with acclamation to actually shout. Because when we see him face to face, it isn't going to be like, oh, is it really nice to meet you? I mean, we are just going to be, and it says about joy is going to fill our heart. I mean, it is just going to be an, an incredible, awesome, indescribable time. So, <laughs> we should, shouldn't we? We're going to talk about who we are. Not who people think we are. Not who we think we are. Not who our culture says we are. We're going to talk about what God says we are. If you're new with us, we're doing a series in 1 Peter. You can turn there a while. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. As you turn there, let me share a little journey of our life. It was 1984. Bev, myself, and our oldest daughter, who was two at that point, moved to Canada. I remember the amount of paperwork was mind-boggling to get from this country into another country. It took about 18 months. When we finally got permission to live there, we did not have a Canadian citizenship status. We had what was called a landed immigrant status. That's what we were called. We were called landed immigrants. And with that status, we had limited benefits. We couldn't do some things that citizens could do. And while we lived there for 10 years, those benefits never changed. It wasn't like year after year, since you decided to stay, we're going to give you a little more. No. If you wanted full benefits, you had to renounce your citizenship of another country and then take on their citizenship. What I find fascinating is that Peter paints a picture for us. What it's like to live here in our human bodies. In this planet we call Earth. He uses the word sojourners or exiles. We can call it resident aliens. I would probably call it landed immigrants. And we have limited benefits here. It's not like it was supposed to be. It's not like it's going to be. You know, the choir reminded us that this is a temporary home. We are just sojourners. We're exiles. We were not designed for sin and death. And someday, because we are called citizens of heaven, so at one point, Peter contrasts the position we have in terms of our citizenship in heaven, but also the position we have in contrast to what we now call home. Now, thinking about that, let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in? There's a reason for that. This is not your home. You were not designed for sin and death. You were designed for something far grander, far more awesome, far more extravagant, far more magnificent that we cannot even begin to understand. We try, but it's all limited. 
That's why you have some weird stuff going on in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel sees this spinning wheel and everything else. He cannot describe what he sees. And when we get home, we will finally understand how great thou art. I want to read verses 11 and 12, so follow with me. It'll be on the screen as well. But this is where we're going to park this morning. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, I mean, you see the contradiction there? You're going to be doing honorable things and they're going to say, no, you're evil. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's three questions I want to answer this morning based upon these two verses. First question is, who are we? The second question, what are the crucial issues we face in terms of who we are? And the third question is, how do we respond? In other words, what difference does it make? So let's look at who are we. Verse 11, beloved, let's just stop there. We are loved ones of God. That's what that means. This word beloved is found eight times in Peter's two epistles. It means that we are God's loved one. Other places, he calls us his children. Other places, he calls us his sons and daughters. In terms of the church, he calls us his son's bride. Think about that. There's a wedding here yesterday. And you know, the bride acted like a bride should. Now, I'm told on cable shows there's something called Bridezilla. It's where brides don't act the way they're supposed to. They think they're entitled. It's all about them. As the church, we need to act like the beautiful. I mean, think about that. He calls us his son's bride. He says we're adopted. We're heirs. And this is a common theme throughout Scripture. Listen to these verses in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, there it is again, he keeps calling us his loved ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's how the bride should act. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The call here is that we are to act like we really believe this. The call is that we begin behaving like sons and daughters, as brides, as beautiful brides, as beloved children of God. Now last week, I talked about how we know this to be true in our minds but somehow we have to learn how to taste it. We get it down into our emotions, but we also have to live it in our bodies. Here's the problem we struggle with since we are resident aliens and sojourners in this world, and there's a whole lot of lies and idols and stuff coming at us. There's this gap between what we know to be true and how we live. I call it the knowing-doing gap. 
We know that we should not give ourselves over to idols because they enslave us, they captivate us, they shift our values and our priorities, and we end up in places that we were never designed to be. And instead of sitting in the palace of God around his glorious table, we're out in the back alley dumpster diving, and we think that's as good as it gets. Now, let me give you some principles that bring this gap closer. Principles that have helped me say, okay, here's what I know, and here's where I need to live. The first is know the why before the how. Why brings purpose. It centers us. It brings creativity. It inspires us. The why, we always understand the cause and what's at stake. The why gives us a live hope. It gives us a cause worth suffering for. But far too often we lose touch with the why and we end up in the how and the what. Now in the business world, they've done some of these studies and what they've learned is that whenever a business walks away from its core values, now our core value is Christ. Our mission is to bring glory to God. But whenever a business walks away from its core values and gets caught up in the how and the what and not the why, they go bankrupt. Now think about our current government. I mean, what we have today is because they've lost the why. And it's all about the how and the what. We don't hear any more calls, calls for behavior like we heard in the 60s from then-President John F. Kennedy where he says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So when it happens in the church, we end up dividing over non-essentials. Programs, dress, styles, buildings. Now why do we worship? We worship to honor and glorify God. Amen? Amen. That's the why. If we lose the why, then we get caught up in the how and the what. It's all about style and preference then. And we don't realize that the only question we ask going out of this place is, God, were you pleased with my worship today? Did I honor you? Did I bring glory by my attitudes and my heart? Well, let's be honest. And I know for myself, sometimes there's a gap between what I know and how I live because I like my preferences. Here's a second thought. Knowing comes from doing and teaching others how. Do you know what we call this? It's called discipleship. Studies tell us in education that if you do not apply what you learn within 30 days, you will lose that knowledge. We talk about illiteracy when it comes to Scripture. It isn't because we don't study. It isn't because we don't read. It isn't because we don't memorize. It's because we fail to adapt it into our lives. Our knowing needs to find expression in other people. That's why discipleship is so critical. Here's a third. Learn to live with courage rather than fear. When you study fear, and again, Scripture says perfect love casts out fear. Fear fosters knowing doing gaps. I mean, I stop doing because I might fail, or I might be wrong, or I might mess up. Or I'm afraid that someone isn't going to like what I'm doing. I don't know if you heard the story in the news that's been going on. An assistant 
football coach. And he had been doing this for years. He's inspired by a movie called Facing the Giants. And after every single game, he'd walk out onto the field at the 50-yard line and just pray. Well, because of the current culture of offense, somebody saw that, called the school, and they told Joe, you can't pray out on the field in the presence of spectators and students anymore. Somebody might get offended. This last week, they had a particular tough loss. The school threatened to take his job if he did this. But he walked out into the field all alone to pray. Here's what he prayed. Now think about how offensive this is. Lord, I thank you for these kids and the blessing you've given me with them. We believe in the game. We believe in competition. And we can come into it as rivals and leave as brothers. I mean, what a prayer. I mean, what? Well, let's get offended about that, right? Well, here is the cool thing that happened. Well, his team was told that if he does this, he can't go out, they can't go out, and the parents were told they can't go out. The rivals, all of a sudden, he found himself surrounded by the opposing team's players and parents praying with him. So live with courage. Knowing doing takes courage. Another principle, fight the competition, not each other. I want you to hang on to that thought because we're going to talk about it later in this verse. I think sometimes we confuse who the real enemy is. And then finally, measure what matters. Measure what matters. There's an old axiom that says we measure what we hold dear. And think about what we measure in our churches. Dallas Willard always says, the ABCs of any church measurement is attendance, buildings, and cash. <laughs> That's what gets people, people excited. You know what gets me excited? People like Jonathan. You know what gets me excited? When I see some people from Recovery Discovery on stage playing with the band, sitting in the choir, singing. What gets me excited is when I see some college students uh, on stage playing with us. I think about the potential they have. I guess what I'm saying is what excites me is when I see Christ working in people and through people. And the only way I can know that is if I sit down and hear their stories. So measure what matters. Who are we? We are beloved. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are resident aliens in this world. We're loved by God, but we are citizens of another kingdom. What are the critical issues we face? The second question. There's really two things that Peter presents here. The first is what I call the eternal issue, the war over our souls. He says that we should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Scripture tells us there are three enemies of the soul. There's the flesh, that's the sin inside us. There's the world, that's the sin around us. And there's the devil. Now, I want you to reflect back to that principle I shared that we have to fight the competition, not each other. You know, sin is when we replace God with something or someone else. The result is an addiction in our spirits. And anything can become a sin. It can become our addiction. That passage I quoted just before baptism, 
talking about running this race, it said, let us lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us, but also every weight. I mean, these are good things that we attach idolatry status to and it distracts us from who Christ is. Having said that, church can become a sin. When it's our form of church, when we crucify the head of the church, Jesus Christ, in order to gain what we want in church. Work can become a sin. When we become workaholics at the expense of everything and everyone around us. But you know, we get sin inside us and we get sin in the world. But we don't so often talk about the devil, do we? Now the word tells us the devil's out to get you. It describes him as a roaring lion seeking to devour anyone he can get his hands on. Calls him the God of this world, and he is out to take us down. So why is it we don't talk about the devil too much? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I think he has an accurate grip on it. He says there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Now, all Peter is telling us is this, that we have to be intentional about those things that wage war against our soul. Think about Pearl Harbor. Why was there so much destruction at Pearl Harbor? It's because they weren't ready. They weren't prepared. In their widest imagination, they never thought another country would come in and invade us on our soil. It was our pride that made us believe those things. But think about what it means to be intentional. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes finally in verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So there's the challenge. We have to be strong in the Lord. How can we intentionally be strong? Well, he tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Here's what Paul tells us. Number one, be aware. You have to be aware of who the enemy is and what's happening. Number two, he says, prepare. And if you're going to put on the armor of God, you've got to prepare yourself for what is coming your way. It is a war against your soul. It is a whole principality and power seeking to destroy you and take you out. And then he says, number three, arm. Arm yourself. It's a battle. So prepare, I mean, be aware, prepare, and arm. And he goes on to say this in verse 14 of chapter 6. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, that's God's word, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
We are made righteous in Christ. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given to the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Just simply means we pray for each other in the front lines. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, not out of fear, but out of courage, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. There's the imagery again of sojourners, exiles. Ambassadors go to where? They go to foreign countries. They are not citizens there. They are guests there. that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And we are all called ambassadors of Christ. We are to be and do the thing where people find hope. I mean, one of my favorite verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And you get this imagery that people are coming after you and they're accusing you and they're angry that you have hope. But give an answer with gentleness and respect. But that's the first critical issue. It's an internal one. We are at war. And there's a war for our souls. And there's a war for the souls of people that we encounter every single day. Here's the second critical issue. Giving glory to God. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now in 1 Peter chapter 4, you can flip over there, verses 7 through 11. Listen to what he says there about this whole thing about giving glory to God. He writes, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And there's this whole analogy that, you know, when we close the knowing doing gap, the value and the power of our prayers go up. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified. So you get the picture here. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter how we navigate our difficult relationships and circumstances, everything we do is for his glory through Jesus Christ. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll get that in a more perfect sense when we get home to our citizenship. But here, the crucial issue is 
that the church doesn't always glorify God the way they should. And we have to be careful that we don't minimize that. We have to be careful we don't set that aside. We have to understand that no matter where we find ourselves, we give God the glory by how we choose to live. You know, claims about this incredible, all-powerful, immense, majestic God, we cannot reduce him down to our size. So it's good to keep it out there. It's good to aim at it. It's good to evaluate. Remember what I talk about measuring? You know, do we measure our lives in contrast to how we're bringing glory to God? Are we aligning our behaviors up with those things that when people see the hope in us, we'll be ready to talk about that whole God thing going in our lives? I think one of the things that we struggle with in this world is the reality and we talked about this war, is that we are all finite, flawed human beings. Amen? And all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we are prone to sin. You know, Paul, towards the end of his life, says, you know, I am chief among sinners. A lot of people say, well, Paul looks back in his life and his past and and he reflects all those things he did against the church. And, and so he just says, wow, you know, I am chief among sinners. That's not what he means there, I believe. I think Paul, as he grows in the light of the grace and righteousness of Christ, he realizes that things that he never considered sin were sin. They grieved the Holy Spirit. They didn't bring glory to God. They were fiery darts of the devil because he's described as what? An angel of light. Because sometimes he looks good. And sometimes he tastes good. And sometimes you really believe that that is what is valuable to you until he has you in a place that you're in chains, enslaved, and you wake up and say, how did I get here? It's good to keep it out there. Who we are. We are beloved. We are not of this world. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We are citizens of another kingdom. And what are the critical issues we face? Well, one is there's a war for our souls, and there's a war for every soul, every human being on this planet. And two, there's a war against the glory of God. And we need to shine that bright. So how do we respond what difference does it make in the final end is another way of saying this. Well, and you've heard me say this last week, and we have to do it, and I'm going to say it again this week. We have to take what we learn. We have to move it into our minds, then move it into our hearts, and then move it into our lives, how we live out day to day. So we've got to remember who we are, and there's some days you wake up and you're not going to feel that love. But that doesn't change the truth. You're going to wake up some days and you're going to feel other kinds of things because of things that were said to you, because of your circumstances, because of the difficulties you're going through. And understand that the lies of Satan will come in and he'll whisper in your ear and sometimes he'll shout it in your face. He'll be standing there as that lion roaring. But you don't believe it. 
And that's where the body comes in and we gather together and we hold each other accountable. We pray for each other. We study God's word together. It's called discipleship. And you notice I didn't sit there and we, we, we don't sit around and condemn each other for what happened that week. It says we bear with each other. I read that. And we forgive each other. We show them the way out. And we're in a war. You know, D.L. Moody said this, and I love his quote. He says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. We're in a war inside of us, and we're in a war in our world. And the battle is not for likability and acceptance. The battle is to bring God glory in everything we say and do and think. And we're in a war with the prince and power of this world. Jesus said it this way. He brings it down to a really kind of simple statement that puts everything into perspective. For what? Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, that he is an exile and a sojourner in, and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? He puts all the priorities out saying, listen, there is only one single greatest thing that you should aim for. And that's your citizenship in heaven. And there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Amen? So the goal, how do we respond? The goal is to integrate the truth into our lives. And we do that every day. In a moment, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And then we're going to watch a video. It's a music video for people like music, but it's done by Mercy Me. And the movie's... The video is called Flawless. I want you to pay attention to the imagery of this. It fascinates me. And pay attention to the people they put up in terms of story. It really describes everything we're talking about here. That this is not our home. That we are sojourners, we are exiles, and we are moving towards heaven. The kingdom of God. The throne of God. The place where we will understand how great he is. Let's pray and then we'll watch the video. Father God, I pray for wisdom in all this because we know a lot of things. We just fail and seek to apply it. Forgive us for that. Help us, Lord, to live as people of hope. No matter what our circumstance or situation, may we embrace who we are in you and not embrace all the stories and all the lies that our culture tells us. We don't have to believe the media. We don't have to believe the news reports. We know who we are. Help us to live it and live it with courage and live it with gentleness and compassion. We pray these things in your name. Amen. There's got to be more Than going back and forth From doing right to doing wrong Cause we were taught that's who we are well, Come on, get in line right behind me You along with everybody Thinking there's worth in what you do Then like a hero who takes the stage when 
You know, I love the imagery of that where we're washed white. We're flawless. It's hard to believe, isn't it? 
It's how Christ sees us. That's who we are. We're his beloved sons. I want to close with a prayer that I use, and it's one of the written prayers that I use. It's an ancient prayer. We use it here one other time. It's called the prayer of abandonment because that's how we get to that place. We abandon ourselves and we fall down before the cross of Christ and we accept his sacrifice and his righteousness for us. But here's the prayer. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart. For I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself. To surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father. Amen. Go on God's grace.